If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. The killing of Julius Caesar on the Ides of March in 44 BC was among the most shocking events of antiquity and one that changed the course of history. Peter Stottard's latest book, The Last Assassin, tells the story of the killing and the subsequent hunt for the assassins, which was orchestrated by Caesar's adopted son and heir, Octavian. Here, in conversation with our production editor, Spencer Mizzen, Peter describes how Octavian's ruthless revenge mission led to a brutal civil war and the dawn of Rome's imperial age. But Peter, your new book, The Last Assassin, tells the story of the hunt for the killers of Julius Caesar, which was um, one of the most turbulent periods in the history of ancient Rome. Now, Peter, you're, you're a former editor of The Times. You've, you've had a distinguished career in journalism. Um, why did you decide to turn your hand to um, history of the histories of ancient Rome? And what is it about that period that you find most compelling? It's what I've done all my life, in fact. In fact, there are some people who think that I was, even when I was editing The Times or, or being a political correspondent, I was always had half a foot in, in ancient Rome or half a leg or uh, one foot, maybe. And um, I always found it a very important and useful way of helping to understand things. Studying the ancient world is like walking a tightrope. You, you look down on one side and... The world seems very similar and everybody seems to be behaving more or less as you think that you might behave. And then you look down on the other side and everything is completely different. People seem to have totally different values. They're doing totally different things. Sometimes they seem crazy. And and, uh, actually, that tightrope way of looking is not a bad way of dealing with the modern world too. Sean, how difficult is it to recreate a set of events that took place 2,000 years ago. How do you get into the mind of your protagonists? 
We've got to be careful trying to get into people's minds. But although this, this event was a long time ago, we actually know more about what happened on that day uh, than we know about almost any other day in ancient history. And probably about any day until for about a thousand years. So it's not quite as empty a period, and the information isn't quite as uh, concealed as sometimes uh, people like to think. We've got quite a lot to to go on. And although it is a long time ago, and there were people who were very different from us in some ways, as well as as very alike, um, my time as a journalist just told me that... um, the same kind of difficulties in understanding what's going on in people's minds. You know, it can be just as difficult understanding what's going on in Tony Blair's mind, which I spent most of the Iraq war with Tony Blair, uh, working out what was in his mind from what he was saying, was in some ways not totally different from trying to understand what was in the mind of, uh, of Brutus or Cassius or Cassius Parmensis, my hero, about whom we have only fragments, but we have enough, you know, to, to be able to answer the important questions. Sure. Now, I wonder if we could return um, to the event that triggered the bloodletting and, and chaos that your book chronicles, the, the, the murder of Caesar. Um, what were the assassins' motivations? Why did they come to the conclusion that Caesar had to die? They were mixed motivations. Um, some were personal, some financial, but they were fundamentally political and uh, philosophical. And one of the differences between then and most of now is that they were not very interested in consequences. They were looking for what was the right thing to do. Brutus and Cassius and most of the people that we, whose ideas we can understand were very concerned with what was right, what would make them look good in history, particularly true of, of Brutus, and were more interested in that than as it were, what would happen afterwards, which is why often, so often, assassins go wrong by their own terms, because often, often they people assassinate uh, other people in order to achieve certain ends. But very rarely do those ends um, take place. Often the opposite of the ends take place. And um, sometimes it's because actually the people who have steeled themselves to assassinate someone are more interested and more driven by their own personal moral concerns, political concerns, and sometimes personal pique and the fact that the the man has had an affair with your wife or whatever. I mean, they're more driven by that than necessarily what is going to happen after Caesar or anybody else is dead. And can you introduce us to some of the lead players in the in, in the assassination? I mean, the, the likes of Cassius and Brutus. What, what kind of people were, were these guys? Well, well, Caesar was killed by people who were mostly his friends and supporters, or people who'd been very close to him. This was a this assassination was what we might now call a sort of joint enterprise of people who had either worked very closely with Caesar, like Decimus Brutus, uh, Marcus Brutus, and Cassius Tribonius. I mean, Caesar had been fighting a lot of wars, and these guys had fought a lot of wars alongside him, and they kind of knew what he was like. And some of them uh, assassinated him because they could see that within him was the seeds of uh, tyranny, becoming a king, however they wanted to put it. They put it in different different ways. But some of them um, 
knew him very well and thought they sh- and had fought for him and done things for him and short and thought that they should have done better as a result. They were just jealous. They, they thought that you know why did Caesar get all the glory and and them not enough? And then there are other people who could see other pe- people who hadn't been supporters of Caesar. Caesar was famous for his clemency. You know, he would he would often reward people who had been his enemies. He thought that made him look good and was quite effective because he'd been fighting a very bitter civil war against Pompey. And they were basically the same people on the, you know, on different sides. So he rewarded a lot of people who hadn't been on his side. Therefore, the people who had been on his side got got angry too. So there were people who felt they should have done better from Caesar's success people who thought that they were angry that other people had done almost as well from Caesar's success as they had done, and people who were close enough to Caesar to see that actually, if they kind of let him get away with the way things were going, he might destroy the entire political system. And they rather naively thought that if they could get rid of him, they could the, the old ways would just come straight back, which of course they didn't. Um, um, Caesar's assassination, I mean, to, to contemporaries at the time, would they have known that this was a, a world-changing event immediately? Would it have had a massive impact on, on Rome at the time? The, the answer to that depended on where you were, were standing. The, the, the people who actually killed him, Brutus and Cassius, and Cassius Parmentus was one of the lesser um, players, but he lived longer than anybody else, and he could actually see the consequences of what happened more than the others who died, who died as a result more, more, more quickly. They... Brutus, say particularly, saw it as a great event because his sense of himself was as a, a man from a family who'd been involved in all the great events of Rome. He was someone who, for whom history was his bloodstream. It was his whole way of thinking about himself. And he had a wife from a similar family. And so history really was kind of motivating factor. He was a man of the past, if you like. Whereas um, Gaius Cassius and Cassius Parmentus and some of the others were more modern, you might think they were more that they were more men of the future, and they thought that they were they were kind of catching up with the old people, and they thought they were more involved, were less concerned to be martyrs, perhaps more concerned to kind of win, more more as we as we would see, kind of modern and and, and forward thinking, and so there was a, there were a mixture of a mixture of people, um, but. They were, it was all political. One of the biggest problems of, of when you think about modern assassination is that the people who write about it always seem to suggest that the people are mad in some way, mentally disturbed or deranged. And that is helpful often for both sides in arguments because the, the establishment never want to think that anybody who's an assassin has got has any reasonable... Um, or rational uh, excuse for doing it, because that would suggest that there could be good reasons for killing um, killing leaders. And the lawyers and the defenders of the person who has done the assassination often want to suggest that they're mad in order to um, get them off, get them off the death penalty or somehow lessen their sentence or, or make them people feel less angry with them. So to some extent, the pure political, philosophical political motivation of assassins can often be rubbed out from both sides of the page. And there's no doubt that these the, the, the men who killed Julius Caesar, and they all killed him together. They didn't get anybody else to kill him. They didn't get slaves. They didn't get professional assassins. They didn't get they didn't poison him in with you know, they get the servants to put the poison in the in, in the wine. They wanted to 
kill him together. And they use very short daggers. That's one of the reasons why they use the daggers. I mean, it would be much easier to kill Caesar with a simple sword thrust. He would probably, that would be much more reliable. But each, there were 20, we don't know how exactly how many of them there were, but it was very important to them that this large group of mainly upper-class uh, men uh, should all get a dagger in. It was a joint enterprise, and that meant it was political. It meant it was a, 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 an exercise of one part of the policy politic against another. Um, your book also documents the, the relentless rise to power of Caesar's adopted son and heir, Octavian, who would go on to become uh, Rome's first emperor under the name of Augustus. Now, what kind of man was he? Everyone got him very wrong from the start. Um, immediately after the assassination, when uh, my man Cassius Parmensis and uh, the, the bigger figures, Cassius and Brutus and Trebonius, were all, after all um, milling around wondering what to do, um, there seemed, for a brief time, the possibility that what what they'd wanted to happen would happen, that the, basically the waters would just close over. And they persuaded Mark Antony, who was Caesar's closest um, associate, who they'd kept away from the Senate for, for the, at the uh, time of the, of, of the assassination. They kind of did a deal with him, brokered by Cicero, which essentially tried to say, look, let's try and pretend that, Cicero never, that, that Caesar never happened. Let's um, just let bygones be bygones. Everyone can have the jobs, the great jobs that Caesar had promised them, because they're all his friends, mostly, or, or people who've been promised something in, in return for something else. Um, everyone can have their gravy. Everyone can have the jobs. Everyone can have the money. And, but we just, won't, we just won't have Caesar. And this was a, a deal that seems quite suitable for, for everyone, all the top people anyway. And, and when Caesar's will was um, uh, announced, it turned out that he left his money and his name to a sort of young teenager who lived a long way away and was at university who no one knew much about and uh, had no reason to think would, would interrupt this cosy deal that everybody had done. But Octavian... Uh, even Octavian's adopted parents or step-parents thought it was a very bad idea for him to go back and risk risk everything and to seize what Caesar had left him. But, but Octavian was a very extraordinary boy, and he didn't see it like that. And he came over, and because he had Caesar's name, he he, and because he was able to use that name so cleverly, uh, he managed to get the loyalty of Caesar's soldiers. Now, no one had asked Caesar's soldiers whether they should assassinate him. The top people hadn't asked the people at the bottom at all. And, and they also managed to get a lot of support from the people of Rome, who had actually done pretty well under Caesar. Caesar's power grab, if you like, looked at from Brutus's point of view, was a power grab against the, the upper class. It wasn't a power grab against the lower classes. So Octavian managed to discover, and, uh, and played it very well, uh, that actually the people and the soldiers were actually... would, would avenge Caesar. And so he um, embarked on a series of, uh, of marches and uh, um, battles over a long period. It was a complicated period involving all the people that I'm, all these different characters that I talk about in The Last Assassin. Uh, and um, I managed to, to win battles, mainly as a result that he was the man carrying Caesar's banner, if you like. 
and uh, I don't think anybody who uh, you, you asked did they realize that no I, I don't Mark Antony and Brutus they didn't they gradually and rather painfully under, began to un, to understand that uh, a soldier who thought he was still fighting for Caesar was a rather more uh, effective soldier than someone who was fighting from some idea of the Republic or some idea of ancient institutions or for the sort of glory of Brutus's ancient Republican family. That meant a lot to Brutus and Cassius, and uh, but didn't matter so much to the soldiers and, and the people. And the Cassius Parmensis, the man I'm talking about in, in this book, and who you know, no one's ever really looked, tried to look at it from the, through the eyes of these kind of lower figures, uh, could see all this. I, th- I think probably. I mean, he, he was caught up in this much more than the, than the, than the grander figures. And of course, we don't. We have very little knowledge of what the individual soldiers and people said. So it's a good. He's a good way of of cutting through some of the. Uh, Sort of aristocratic and sort of uh, d- deceit that that, that that lay around this uh, deed. So, is that the reason you you, you chose to base a book's es- escapades on one of the lesser known of Caesar's assa- assassins, i.e., Cassius Parmensis? Did it give give you a, a sort of different angle with which to look at these events? Yes, it did, and, and I think that's a very important uh, aspect of, of 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 writing history, and and it's and. Um, Particularly ancient history, it's very easy to see the events always in the same in the same way, or, or through or through the same eyes. Because we, we, although we have a lot of information about this, there some, some of these people who wrote about this, Caesar himself, yeah, Caesar himself on on the um, on, on what happened before, but Cicero and um, some fine historians, they're very powerful voices, and they've been turned into books and food and films and children's books and everything over many, many years, centuries. And so it's very easy to, to, to look at it in a particular way. And I think um, it, it's quite it's useful and important to look at it from other ways. And the, although we only have fragments of, of, of Cassius Parmentus's life, he was at least there for all, for a very long period. You know, he, was the, he was the last assassin. He was the, when Octavian uh, found that he had this power, and that the, the soldiers and the people were with him. He relentlessly pursued everybody who'd killed Caesar because that was the main motivating force for his soldiers. His soldiers would fight against a killer of Caesar more willingly and more enthusiastically than they would just someone who happened to be on Octavian's side. And so uh, it was. Uh, so Octavian pursued every single one of them, uh, and you thought by the end, with Cassius Parmentis, not the most important, sitting in Athens in in exile um, when Octavian has already become August, you know, has already won, uh, is um, you might have let him off, but no, it, it was part of his whole the, the driving force of his early mind as a leader was was to destroy everyone. So it became like a manhunt. And uh, and it was a manhunt, and and Cassius Parmensis was the last victim. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. They cut off Cicero's head and his hands and his tongue and pinned them up in the forum, uh, amongst thousands of, of, of people who were killed in the, what were called prescriptions. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, 
the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. Did Octavian um, realise at um, an early stage in, in the hunt for the assassins that by, by killing Caesar's assassins, he would, um, his power would grow through, through his, his acts of revenge and that, that was almost a shortcut to becoming the, the, the most powerful man in Rome? I mean, my book is is not a study of the mind of of, of of Octavian. I think the I think he he it's always easy when people have achieved something, if they become um, the first emperor of Rome and the, the the first emperor of a string of emperors and and set a whole new way of governing Europe, um, to think that that was in his mind from from the start. Um, I think that's quite doubtful because not just because although he was a very extraordinary man. Um, it's something that hardly anybody can ever do, and so I don't think he knew exactly what he wanted. He was making it up as he goes as he went along, like an awful lot of um, like an awful lot of political of political leaders. Nonetheless, he did grasp um, the power of uh, of Caesar's name or what it could do for him in a way that the assassins never did, because they were working on kind of theory and principles like you know what was the right thing thing to do uh, was it right to kill a tyrant oh it's obviously wrong to kill a person is it right to kill someone who's going to kill other people is it right to do to kill someone who is going to subvert the constitution what are the what are the justifications for for an assassin and are there any there were quite a few of people in in the period which i cover quite closely before the assassination who who didn't like Caesar, but but didn't think that it was right to kill him. I think quite a lot of people might have, quite a lot of moderns would understand that. You might not like some modern uh, leader uh, who is taking your country or the world, you think, in a wrong direction, but you wouldn't think that you had any uh, right to uh, to kill him. And, and that and that uh, and that position existed even among Brutus and Cassius's um, close close friends. They could see all the arguments for killing, but they just didn't think that um, 
uh, that killing was the right thing to do. Or some of them thought that actually if you killed if you killed Caesar, you would create a vacuum into which there would be civil war. And there were quite a lot of people who thought that civil war was even worse than tyranny. So they were having these arguments as to what, you know, what was best, what was worst, why would you do it, why would you not do it? Uh, and creating this sort of coalition of people, all of whom agreed rather amazingly that they would kill him in the Senate on the, on the, on the, on the, on the Ides of March, all do it together, even though their motives were slightly different. Uh, but, but the absence of consideration of consequences was the most, um, perhaps one of the most things which people find hard, hardest to understand. They, they, the, the act itself was what mattered. It was very, it was, it, people who followed Brutus in particular in later years often took this same path. I mean, you remember uh, the, the, the man who killed Abraham Lincoln who was an actor who'd actually played Brutus and who was named after His brother was named after Brutus. His father was named after Brutus. You know, he, 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 he jumped on the stage after killing Abraham Lincoln, you know, um, with sort of Brutus in his head. He had no... He, he thought that that was just the right thing to, to do because he wanted to, you know, avenge the South. But he... He had no... Con- there were no sense of what the consequences of that would be. There were very, very little... When Charlotte Corday killed Maurer, stabbed him in his bath, if you remember, in the French Revolution in 1793, um, she thought that she would stop the guillotine, but she didn't. And, of course, Robespierre came along and there were even more guillotines. They, 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 but they still thought that they were doing the right thing. And Charlotte Corday's last words in a letter were, you know, I'm looking forward to meeting Brutus in the Elysian Fields. So the two, you know, of the most prominent assassinations of the of the subsequent period, both had Brutus on their lips as, as they died, or as they acted as and as they died. And um, so th- they both might be, re- be written off as failures, and Brutus himself is, as, can be written off as a, as, a, as a failure. But we have to understand that sometimes people act, particularly when they're acting for polit- political and philosoph- philosophical purposes, that the only, is that consequence is not the only reason why people do things. No. Peter, this is also the story of the, I guess, of the fall of the Roman Republic to a certain extent. Um, can you explain what exactly the Roman Republic looked like and what distinguished it from the age of emperors that, that was to follow? Well, according to the Romans' idea of, them, of themselves, the power of Rome was all about checks and balances. So, you know, when Brutus looked back at his past, his his ancestor was one of the first consuls, pretty much the first, you know, and he had a partner. Uh, and um, the whole point of Rome was it was, it was SPQR, you know, Senate and, and the Roman people. So power was spread between uh, senators, between uh, tribunes, between sort of parliaments of one sort of kind of, of another, not quite as we would recognise them. Um, they were very powerfully engaged by the law, and the law was all about um, – a lot of the law was about stopping people doing things. So the consuls, you know, could only serve for one year. They were they were more concerned to stop tyranny and one person taking over than necessarily that they were to run an efficient government. Didn't really understand efficiency as we would see it. They were very concerned that Rome was powerful and that it shouldn't come under one person's control. And, and this was a powerful motivating factor for, for, for Gaius Cassius uh, and, and, and for the... 
the, the people who were working for Caesar. But of course, as the Roman as the Roman rule grew, the power of the individual soldiers and generals, Caesar being the greatest of them, became greater than the powers of the civilians' uh, authorities back home. And the, the famous you know, crossing of the Rubicon, which was an act of illegal act of Caesar in bringing an army back from the province of Gaul into, in, into, into Italy, was just one of these um, signs that the, the, the means of stopping one-man power were not as strong as the desire of certain people to have that one-man power. And Caesar was just the last in the Republic of the people who they couldn't stop, except by killing him. But that didn't stop it. That just delayed for 13 years um, an even greater concentration of power in the man who claimed who was Caesar chose as his son. Sure. Now, now um, obviously, as, as we, you've mentioned, the the hunt for Caesar's killers triggered a, a civil war. I mean, how, how bitter was that war? Um, and, and what were the main milestones in, in the conflict? Well, as, as soon as the, uh, as the pact between Antony and the assassins collapsed, as soon as Octavian was back, then it was a very... Uh, there, was, there were various armies... Um, Fighting, fighting each, fighting, fighting each other in some, and in the way which the England, England understood in the civil war, some of the most brutal fighting that takes place is in civil wars. So you had a period around Palmer. A lot of this book is is stems from Palmer, up which in those days wasn't quite in Italy. It was in it was still in in in, in Gaul, what they call Cisalpine Gaul. Uh, and uh, you had places where Palma Mutina, uh, modern Modena, uh, where there were three or four armies, all, uh, some of them supposed to be allied, some of them not allied, some representing what Caesar had wanted, some what the Senate had passed, some what the people had passed. And, and the brutality of those battles was immense because, frankly, the Romans, when they were fighting other people, tended to win battles mostly quite easily. I mean, they were they had bad days, but it was. But when they were fighting each other, it was absolutely gruesome, and they were uh, just, just as people found in subsequent subsequent civil wars, they knew exactly how the other was going to fight. So the, the the battles around in the swamps around Parma and uh, and, and Mutina and in on the borders between uh, Cisalpine Gaul and Italy were absolutely vile. And once that had um, sorted itself out, the um, the, the the assassins army had sort of lost in the, in the west in Italy in, in Italy, but they'd all gone away and they were very powerful at sea, and they and they mounted a, a mass they mounted a, a massive military force over in uh, on on the other side of the Aegean in Greece and in uh, in Asia and from all the Greek islands, and they put together a force which was almost as big, well maybe maybe even bigger than the force that. Um, Antony and Octavian, who by then were allied, had put together on the other side. And so you were heading towards a, a, a massive conflict in, in Philippi, uh, Philippi in northern Greece. Both armies then pincered on this one uh, place a long way from Italy. The, the Romans tended to quite like fighting their battles outside Italy for various reasons. And so um, these two armies clashed a long way, a long way away. And although um, Cassius was a brilliant general, as was Antony, Octavian was not much of a general at all. 
um, Brutus a bit uncertain, but um, they clashed. Uh, and I think the fundamental reason why the uh, army of Octavian and Antony won was because they had Caesar's name. As I say, army, so individual soldiers, individual centurions, individual captains were more prepared to risk their lives and to, uh, and, uh, and to fight uh, if they thought they were fighting for Caesar than if they were fighting for freedom, uh, death to tyrants, uh, restoration of republican values. That just didn't cut it as much as fighting for Caesar did. And so there was, there was, there was, that was the big battle, and a lot, a lot of people were, 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 were killed in that, were, were killed in that, and then there were subsequently uh, other... It, it took a long time for Octavian uh, and Cassius to, to gain his final victory. I mean, one of the biggest sea battles in antiquity took place with Cassius Parmensis allied with a man called Sextus Pompeius, who was Pompey's son, uh, and th- th- that was a moment at which Octavian could easily have lost. But he won that one too. He was a lucky man, Octavian. Uh, and, and then gradually it was a sort of mopping up. But it was a mopping up. It was a pretty brutal mopping up of the uh, of the individual assassins. Uh, they, when Antony and Octavian first got together, they put a sort of bounty on every uh, on individual heads. And if, if you'd been involved in the assassination of Caesar, or even been sympathetic to it, you only had to cut off the head of of, uh, of any suspect or anybody on a list and bring it to the forum, and you got a big big prize money. And so, huge numbers of people were were killed and had their heads heads brought to Rome, and, and were paid out. The most famous, of course, being Cicero, who wasn't. Um, an assassin because he was perhaps too intellectual, for, you know, for, for the assassins really to trust him, uh, and he, he could always see every side of every argument. But he was a great enthusiast for the killing once it had happened, and he wrote to one of the you know assassins, a man called um, Minucius Basilus, who I talk about, uh, pretty nasty, nasty man, I think. But uh, and Cicero, the great fastidious philosopher, said, I, "I love you. You're this wonder. It's the most amazing thing you've done." Um, and he really tried to get on, tried to get on board. And um, so they they cut off Cicero's head and his hands and his tongue and pinned them up in the forum, uh, amongst thousands of, of, of people who were killed in the, what were called prescriptions. And so it was. It was a very it was a brutal period, and uh, uh, in which a lot of people who'd been involved in the assassination and people who hadn't uh, lost their heads. And Cassius Parmensis, who by then was more of a sailor uh, than uh, anything else, he was he was a poet and a philosopher and a great man of his hometown. He had lots of ways of looking at himself, but um, he was a sailor and he managed to stay out of trouble. And he fought in some big battles, but um, survived. Say for fourteen years, he was he was the last assassin to fall to um, Octavian's vengeance. So, as far as you can tell, did uh, Cassius Parmensis at any point think, or did he ever at any point begin to relax, sort of think he'd evaded Octavian permanently? It's impossible to really to answer that question. We, I mean, we we can put together. The fragments, in a way, but that that kind of psychological analysis is always pretty dangerous in in, in history. Even if you know a lot more than we know about Cassius Parmensis, I mean, we, we do have a letter a letter that he wrote to Cicero um, when uh, in 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 the middle of the conflict before Cicero, um, when he's definitely imagining a life after he's won, after the assassins have won. 
in which he imagines that Cicero himself will be very important, um, that everybody who's fought on the assassin side will get good jobs, that um, there will, the, the old Rome will return, but perhaps with a few more opportunities for people like him who had fought on the right side in the war. And he praises Cicero in, in a slightly sort of old-fashioned, obsequious way. One of the attractions of looking at through Parmentus is that he's a, he's a kind of more of an ordinary guy. He, he, was a, he wasn't the top man. He wasn't the bottom man. He, um, and he was very obsequious to, to Cicero, who he thought was the, 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 the key player. Um, he wrote not very good poetry. He wrote plays, plays of a rather old-fashioned kind. The whole world was changing around him. It's a sympathetic character in that sense. The world was changing in every way, in a literary, philosophical, political. And he was on a, out on a, on a ship and was sort of stuck in time. And I mean, so he escaped a long time. Well, that was good. That was good for him. But he was sort of frozen in a lot of old um, attitudes. And somehow, when I think in, in in history, there are always more people like that than there are people who are leading the fight for change. We tend to focus so much on the you know, the, the, the the leading architects of the next thing, without always realizing that at the time a lot of the of the the world is driven by people who are not so dissatisfied with what's going on, uh, still running by the old running by the old rules, feel that things you know could be. Uh, a bit better, and um, happy to just to be a part rather than to be at the front. And and it's dangerous, I think, to look at history always through the eyes of the people at the front. Would, would you like to reveal what happened to Cassius Parmensis in this podcast, or would you rather uh, leave it to people reading the book? I I think the uh, truth can be uh, told at all times. <laughs> <laughs> the book begins with Cassius Parmensis in Athens after when it's all over, um, and it's a survey of how he got into the in, into the assassination. What were his beliefs? What were the beliefs of other of of of, of, of others? And whether or not he is he or any of them are likely to escape. And and he was he was a playwright, and he wrote he was writing a, a play about one of the bloodiest aspects of uh, of uh, ancient history, the uh, the story of uh, Atreus and Thyestes, and how Thyestes was forced to sort of eat a, a pie made from the flesh of his own of his own children, and uh, he was so he was there happy in uh, well not very happy possibly I don't know how happy he was, but he was in uh, uh, in Athens with his books with his poetry. With his memories, and one, and he he must have known, however, I think that, that Octavian was going to go come for him, and so after a, about a, a year after Octavian had taken complete power, uh, a man called Varus came from Rome, uh, dealt him the same uh, treatment that uh, a lot all the other assassins had had, had. so he, uh, and he was k- killed by the sword, and. Um, so one of the stories goes, Varus actually stole the play that he was writing, uh, the Thyestes, and it actually was then handed over to another to, to another person who did did a version of the Thyestes, which Antonia, which um, Octavian had put on in Rome to celebrate the anniversary of the Battle of Actium. So it's possible that uh, Cassius Parmensis not only lost his life as the last assassin, but also lost his play, and. Uh, We've lost um, his poetry, and there's only there are only fragments of what he wrote uh, around. But he is still uh, um, 
uh, a lens to, through which you can see this. No one's uh, done this before, but I think the, the view of the last assassin on the vengeance of Octavian uh, is a, a powerful way to to um, to understand not only Caesar and his assassins, but also subsequent assassins. And I just say, the, the original idea, the first person who mentioned the word Cassius Parmensis to me because he's not a figure. A lot of classicists would never even have heard of his name. He doesn't play a big part in the story in anybody else's version. Was a Russian oligarch called um, Boris Berezovsky, uh, and he was an enemy of uh, the, the current Russian state and was in constant fear of his life. Uh, and his he wasn't wasn't a classicist. He was an engineer and a financier and uh, an oligarch and one of the people blamed for taking lots of money from the the, uh, the old Soviet Union. I'm not saying he was any kind of uh, uh, figure of virtue. But he, uh, when we were talking once, when I, I, when I was editor of the Times, I came, I came across him. And he mentioned the words Cassius Parmensis as the last victim of assassin, as the last victim of Octavian. Almost as though, only almost as though he thought that he might, you know, that he, he was in the same boat. And, of course, for Russians, the assassination of Trotsky is a big, is a big part of their, of their history. And Stalin's pursuit of Trotsky, long after Trotsky could do him any harm. Any harm. And uh, his assassination in, in, in Mexico City was an important part of Berezovsky's thinking. So somehow, we are, while we might read Roman history and think of these great figures and all the things that they did in their battles. It's perfectly possible if you come from a different culture and have a different, different kind of person to see Roman history as a, as a pursuit of people like you. We often, when we do history, we, we don't like to think that we're putting ourselves into the story, but we often are. Uh, that's why great politicians are often very keen on great Romans. It makes them feel important. Well, oddly, this, it was the, person, the person who mentioned Cassius Parmensis to me was a man... Who, who felt that he was on the run and could even be a last victim. And when Borisovsky was found hanged in his bathroom in uh, 2013, um, there were quite a few people who thought he had been assassinated, but uh, we'll never know. And finally, Peter, what, what do you think it would have been like to have been a journalist reporting on these events 2,000 years ago? Journalism played no... They had no... The Romans had no idea of what we would call... Um, journalism that they were there was, they they did a lot of uh, writing to support their own interests and almost everybody who was a big deal was some sort of writer you, you weren't really a fully rounded Roman leader or soldier or uh, politician unless you were a writer uh, certainly a speaker uh, often a poet uh, and often a philosopher too which makes the, the build up to Cassius Parmensis uh, build up to the assassination um, all, all, all the more fascinating to try and understand because these were real thinkers. They may not have been the greatest thinkers as we might see it, but at least a large number of them were thinkers. And so th- that's what they were strong on. Um, the, the notion of, um, of of being a journalist and being a war correspondent and covering this from both sides and trying to, uh, to you know to, to understand the whole is. Is, is, is a dangerous delusion. One of the most important things, and it comes out strongly when, when you look at it from the lower orders from, from where I've been looking in this book, is that no one ever knew what was going on anywhere else. 
So when Cassius Parmensis writes to Cicero when he's in Cyprus and he's doing one part of the battlefield and he's talking to Cicero about what's got what was going on in Italy, he has got no idea that uh, Mark Antony has recovered and has lost a battle, but he's now won one and is now the big threat. Uh, Cassius Parmensis is mainly interested in a totally different threat that's a bit closer to him. And there was everybody in fighting ancient battles were far more like that than the idea of the journalist or the, the person standing on the hill looking over and surveying the whole scene. So again, if you want to try and understand history in that way, I think it's often better to stand where most people were standing rather than pretend, as I'm afraid journalists often pretend this, that they actually you know, are on some lofty peak where they know everything and can see everything and uh, everything is clear because it never is to the people who are doing it. That was Peter Stottard. The Last Assassins, The Hunt for the Killers of Julius Caesar is out now, published by Orion. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Tune in tomorrow to hear Caroline Larrington speaking about the Norse gods. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.